we sang that we are hiding in Him, that blessed rock of ages. Then we sang of Jesus Christ as our King, calling each other, exhorting one another to crown Him with many crowns. This evening, the title of the message is Knowing Your King. What is a king? We've talked before about how difficult the concept of a king is for we Americans to grasp. I believe we talked about it uh, on the 4th of July, uh, message that is, not on the 4th of July itself. A king is a sovereign ruler, unquestioned as far as the government goes in his opinions and his decisions. A king not only leads his people, but he dictates in many ways the disposition of their very lives. He determines their prosperity or their poverty, their happiness or their misery, their security or their fear, even their health or disease. As we think about a time not too long ago where sovereign kings ruled, and we think about how the people prospered or faltered based upon the king's policies, the amount of taxation, whether he was truly interested in serving and loving the people or whether he was interested in serving or loving himself. His priorities would dictate so much about the prosperity and the happiness of his people. A king is a representative of his people, but he is also a leader of his people. As we think about Jesus Christ, we understand that the Bible calls Jesus Christ King of Kings. Lord of Lords. And as we pick up in John 18, Jesus Christ is standing before the man named Pilate. And as we consider his interactions with Pilate today, we'll consider the reality of Jesus Christ as our King. Pilate is interested in Jesus' perspective on his own kingship. And we're going to look at the response that perhaps Pilate should have had but didn't have to Jesus Christ as King and the response that we ought to have as we see three lessons about Jesus Christ as our King. Three lessons about Jesus Christ as your King. Three lessons about Jesus Christ as my King. We'll pick up in verse 28 of John 18. John 18, 28. And the first lesson we're going to learn this evening is that Jesus Christ is your Sovereign King. Jesus Christ is your Sovereign King. Look with me in verse 28. And they led Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus Christ might be fulfilled, or that of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Following the denial of Peter, we now focus our attention exclusively on the events surrounding Jesus Christ. He is taken from the halls of Caiaphas, who was the acting high priest, unto a man named Pilate. The other Gospels introduce him as Pontius Pilate. He was the fifth procurator of Judea since Rome had taken control of the land. 
He was a man that possessed civil, military, and criminal jurisdiction over this land of Judea, Samaria, some of the regions beyond. However, as a leader, the Roman representative, he gave a great deal of leeway to the Jewish council, the Jewish panel, we call it the Sanhedrin, he gave a great deal of leeway to them to conduct business among themselves, to conduct the, the lawful um, actions among themselves, the trying of people uh, as they offended Jewish law, those sorts of things. He gave them a great deal of leeway to rule themselves as a nation. Now, as we understand from history, Pontius Pilate ruled in Judea for 10 years. And as we look at the dates, he most likely ruled from about 26 A.D., to approximately 36 A.D. Now, we would presume that Jesus Christ died in about 32 to 33 A.D. And so this would have been well into his rulership. He probably was about six years into his time ruling in Judea. He was known to be very antagonistic to Jewish culture. He was not interested in the Jews. He didn't like their culture. He was very upset because their religion caused them uh, to be a, a very rebellious people. But he was more interested in peace than he was in controversy and in many ways more interested in peace than he even was in justice. And that's what we're going to see today. Verse 28 tells us that the Jews, while bringing Jesus into the judgment hall, would not go themselves. And it says that they would not go themselves because if they did, then they would be unable to eat the Passover. We talked about this in Sunday school a few weeks ago. And what we see is a seeming contradiction here between the Gospel of John and between the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Synoptic Gospels reveal that Jesus was slain on Friday, the 15th of Nisan, which we know to be the day after Passover. It would stand to reckon then that Passover should have been eaten the night before. Why would it be that these Pharisees said that they would not go into the judgment hall lest they defile themselves and not be able to eat the Passover? See, we know God has preserved His Word. We know that God's Word it does not contradict itself. And so when we see these seeming contradictions in Scripture, what we know is that the problem is not with the Word of God. The problem is with our understanding of the Word of God. There's something about the Word of God that we don't understand. Something about the culture, something about what was going on that perhaps the Scriptures don't tell us that we don't understand, but for whatever reason, we don't, we don't know. However, we know that there's not a problem with Scripture. Now, I've presented to you a couple of possible solutions. I'll review them again this evening. It's possible that the meal that Jesus ate with His disciples the night before His crucifixion was actually a pre-Passover meal and that we... Um, as we look at the dates and as we look at the synoptics, it's possible that everything could have actually happened on the Passover day and our understanding of the synoptic Gospels is off. It could have been that the Pharisees were so busy scheming, so busy dealing with this, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, so busy betraying Him, so busy dealing with Judas and trying to get the money and trying to get everything in place and trying to get the men who would go and fetch him that they were just too busy to eat the Passover on the night that they were supposed to, so they were going to eat it the next night. It's possible that they were so busy scheming that they just didn't have enough time to eat the Passover and so they needed to remain clean until such time as they could eat it. 
We also know from the scripture the Passover um, was directly followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they were often spoken of interchangeably. Furthermore, the sacrifices seemed to continue beyond just Passover day. And so perhaps the feasts continued beyond just Passover day. And it's possible that their particular fear was not for the night of the Passover, but for being kept out of the festivities of the entire week of Passover, the week of unleavened bread. We also know that they ate the Passover at sundown on the 14th day of the first month, which actually would have boiled over into the 15th day anyway. So all of these considerations come into our mind. And we recognize that though we don't exactly know how John meshes with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that it could. And we believe that the the Bible has no contradictions. So we rest upon some of these possible explanations, recognizing that this is not the point that John or Matthew, Mark, and Luke are trying to make. The point is what Jesus Christ is there to do, what Jesus Christ has done, and what he will do. So Pilate asks the men in verse 29, what accusation bring ye against this man? That makes sense, does it not? You're bringing a man to a court of law in the dead of night. Pilate wants to know what, what has he done? What's he done wrong? What is he guilty of? And notice their response. Verse 30. If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Picture with me the ridiculousness of this scene. Imagine it today. Imagine it today. The police bring a man into the judge. They pull a judge out of bed, bring him in in the dead of night, and say, this man is a bad man. And the judge says, okay, must be a pretty serious thing. You've pulled me out of bed. This is a pretty serious deal. What has he done? They say, oh, don't worry about that. Just, he's a bad man. See, if, if he wasn't a bad man, we wouldn't have brought him unto you, right? The fact that we brought him unto you means he's a bad man. So just take our word for it. He's a bad man. How ridiculous. There's, it's preposterous. They're, they're not, there's no charges. There's no trial. There's no justice. It's only the vigilante killing of an innocent man. What has he done? Well, he's a bad man. If he wasn't a bad man, we wouldn't have brought him unto you. Pilate sees this, and to be quite honest, he wants no part in it. He wants no part in this. He tells them in verse 31, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. Whatever you want to do to him, judge him according to your law. But see, there's a problem. They couldn't judge him according to their law because according to their law and their false charges against Jesus Christ, Jesus needed to die. And the Romans would not allow the Jews to inflict a capital punishment. They were not, they, they were not given the leeway to take a man and kill him of their own discretion. They had to go through the Roman law system to see a man killed. They can't kill Jesus without this authority. And what we see here is that this was of God. Notice verse 32, and this is where our point, where our point intersects with our text. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. See, Jesus Christ had to die a certain death. Why did he have to die a certain death? Because the prophecies of the Old Testament said that he would be hung on a tree, that he would be bruised, beaten, smitten. The prophecies of the Old Testament had to be fulfilled. And so Jesus Christ had to die a certain way. And this is what we read in verse 32. See, 
Remember back in John 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. He describes himself and he says that he loves his sheep. He cares for his sheep. And in verse 15, he said this, that he must lay his life down for his sheep. That he was going to die for his sheep, but not just die. He was going to lay his life down. And this verse is very important to us because what we see when we read verse 32, that the saying of Jesus Christ might be fulfilled, which he spake, is we see a situation where though Jesus Christ has been taken before the Roman government, though Jesus Christ has been arrested, Jesus Christ is still in control. We see a situation where Jesus Christ has told his disciples that I must lay down my life for you. And he would go on to say in John ten eighteen, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. And he said, I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. See, the very fact that things were going as Jesus Christ said they were going to go, the very fact that Jesus Christ was aligning himself with Old Testament prophecy is an assurance to us as we read of all of the terrible things that are happening here, of all the ways which men are lying and cheating and deceiving in order to see Jesus Christ die, we recognize that it's still not out of Jesus Christ's control, that this is according to the sayings of Jesus Christ, that things are going this way because Jesus Christ had to die a certain way. So you serve a sovereign king. Jesus Christ was not overwhelmed, captured, and slaughtered for his cause. His death wasn't a failure. It was a sacrifice. And it would become his victory. What these evil men meant to do in order to silence Jesus Christ was the very thing that established the victory of his teaching. And rooted in this, the the reality of Christ's sovereignty is our comfort. Do you remember way back in Genesis, we read it not too long ago, when Joseph's brothers sold him into Egypt, that was in Genesis 37, his brothers sought to end his life and therefore his influence. He was sold into Egypt. We know he became the second greatest man just under Pharaoh in Egypt. Years later, Joseph would rule over them and he would not seek vengeance against them. And this is what he tells them. We'll we'll be reading it in a couple of weeks in Genesis 50, verse 20. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, Joseph speaking to his brethren, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. When Esther was taken from her uncle, by the Medes and the Persians, stripped of her Jewish identity and married off to a pagan king. She lamented the loss of her heritage. She lamented the loss of her family. When her people were about to be slaughtered by wicked Prince Haman, when they were in great need, and it became time for her to reveal her heritage, perhaps even unto her death, she was nervous. She was concerned. She was hesitant. And her uncle Mordecai told her this in Esther 4, verse 14. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace for this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. See, throughout the ages, the servants of God have always rested in the reality that 
regardless of the evil devices of men, regardless of their decisions and their schemes and their plans that they seek to bring to pass, God is in control. We'll talk about it a little bit more next week as we continue in John 19. And so it is that when these wicked men would seek Jesus' death, they could still go no further than what God's sovereign will allowed them to do. Yes, they will indeed slay him. But not according to Jewish law, rather according to Roman law, in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled, that he would die this shameful death on the tree. This was the only way that the scriptures would be, confi- would be fulfilled concerning Messiah. And as Jesus Christ so rightly claimed, the scriptures cannot be broken. See, Jesus is your sovereign king. As we continue in the text, second in verses 33 through 36, we see that Jesus is your spiritual king as well. Jesus is your spiritual king. Look at me beginning in verse 33. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of me? Pilate answered him, I a Jew. Thine own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate goes back into the judgment hall after talking to these Jewish leaders, and they say, No, 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 no. We can't kill him. This is your problem. Deal with it. So he goes back into Jesus, and he asks him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate's question is asked to discern his guilt. See, insurrection against Caesar would indeed have been a very serious offense. If this man was claiming to be a king and seeking to rise up against the civil authority of the Roman army and the Roman leadership, then indeed, this is something that Pilate would have needed to take care of. This man would have needed to be made an example of. He would need to become an example of Roman might and Roman rule. But Jesus replies to Pilate in a way that he didn't expect. Pilate says, Are you really the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, Sayest thou this thing of thyself? Or did others tell it thee of me? See, Jesus is revealing in Pilate's statement the hypocrisy of the entire proceedings so that all who were there would see how hypocritical this all was. So he asks, Are you asking me this of yourself? Are you actually, are you, do you actually care if I call myself the king of the Jews? Or are you just parroting the points that these Jewish people want you to parrot because they're bugging you? Do you really think, do you really think that I am going to cause insurrection? Is this something that is really worthy of your time or are you just falling into the hands of these angry Jewish people that want me dead? Is Rome really accusing me or is this just some sort of sideshow? Pilate becomes very frustrated. Here he is. On one side of him, he has these angry Jewish leaders. On the other side, he has an innocent man. The Jews will not be happy. They will not be pacified until this man is convicted and killed. But this man is guilty of no crime. But He's here. He's going to probe a little bit. And so he replies in verse 35. We read it. Am I a Jew? It's not me that's accusing you. It's your nation that's accusing you. I'm just here trying to get to the bottom of it. It's your nation 
that's accusing you. And Jesus responds, My kingdom is not of this world. And herein rests our second lesson this evening. See, Jesus is not saying here that He will never rule physically over this world. That's not what He's saying. To say so would be to contradict the teachings of the prophets, the teachings of God's Word since the time of David, since the teachings of God's Word all the way back to Genesis. After all, even in our Scripture reading this evening in Genesis 49, Jacob told his sons, particularly Judah, that the scepter would never depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. That is Jesus Christ. And so we recognize that Jesus Christ was of the seed of David and that David, according to 2 Samuel 7, would never fail to have a, one of his seed on the throne. And so Jesus Christ is not saying he, he will never rule here. But what he is doing is highlighting the nature of his kingdom. And the nature of his kingdom is not like that of any other kingdom the world has ever seen. See, Jesus didn't come to claim land. He didn't come to claim physical dominion. He came to claim citizens. He did not come to challenge earthly rule by governments, but to challenge the spiritual rule of Satan over the hearts of men. And so what proof did he have that he was not coming to depose Rome? What proof did he have that his kingdom was not of this world? He says, if I were a king, shouldn't you expect some resistance? Wouldn't there be someone here banging down your door seeking to fight me, fight for me, excuse me, if I were seeking a physical kingship? If I had spent the last many years of my life preaching a competing kingdom against Rome, wouldn't there have been someone here to fight for my freedom? You know, it never ceases to amaze me how easy it is for men to raise a following. Even the craziest of men, with the craziest of ideas, if taught with enough passion and enough determination, can successfully raise a following. Human history is literally filled with people willing to follow others for no other reason than these people have charisma and conviction. I mean, there are some crazy people who have risen to some pretty amazing leadership roles over large groups of people, cult leaders and the like, simply because they're charismatic and because they have conviction. And I don't mean charismatic in the sense of charisma. But here stands a man. This man has healed the sick. He has healed the lame. He has healed the blind. He has risen men from the dead. And there is not one person banging on Pilate's door saying, hey, if you kill him, I'm going to fight. If you want him, you have to go through me. Not one person. Does that seem weird to you? Well, it would if Jesus Christ was a physical king seeking a physical kingdom at that time. But if his kingdom were not of this world, if the dominion that Jesus Christ was seeking to establish was not physical, if, the, if his teachings were not about politics or armed forces or might versus might, then there would be no army to fight for this man. See, the kingdom of God is not, nor will, it, nor will it ever be a kingdom fought for 
among men. It will never be a kingdom that men have to go to battle to protect or to establish. In this age, as Jesus Christ taught in Luke 17.21, the kingdom of God is within you. And certainly it is not a kingdom that we establish by force. It's not a kingdom to be ruled by a conqueror in the hearts of the conquered, but rather as a kingdom to be ruled by its rightful king in the hearts of his loyal subjects. Now, our loyalty to God is not perfect. Just like we recall from last week, Peter's loyalty to God was nowhere near perfect. We fail in our devotion just as the disciples failed. They failed to watch and pray. They failed to stand next to Christ in His suffering. But the loyalty of Christ's citizens does not change the loyalty of the King who gave Himself for them in love. See, Jesus is your sovereign King. He's in control and that should give us comfort. Jesus is your spiritual King. He's not in this age seeking to rule physically over men and over governments and over armies. He's seeking to rule in the hearts of men. Third and finally this evening, Jesus is your true king. Jesus is your true king. Verses 37 through 40. And the key here is this idea of truth. That's what I'm trying to get across in this last point. As we have learned throughout the book of John, the battle that is actually waging here is a battle of truth. Jesus states as much in verse 37. Look what he says. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered him this, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Jesus' efforts were not directed toward political overthrow. Jesus' mission was not reliant upon the might of militaries or the capacity of diplomats. Jesus came to show the world, capital T, truth. Absolute truth. And every man, he says, that is of the truth, hears him. In other words, every man who is willing to accept the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of the Word of God by Jesus Christ, will accept His teachings and will be of the truth. Now, following Jesus' declaration, Pilate says those famous words. Words which characterized the spirit of his age, and by the way, characterized the spirit of this age as well. He asked this, What is truth. What is truth? You know, this morning, Lene and I had a little debate over truth. I've talked about this before. I wear my watch in a certain way. I wear my watch with its face down. And just about every day, every Sunday, Lene comes up to me and she unclips my watch. She says, you're wearing it backwards. She turns it around and she clips it back on. This is pretty much a routine that we've got going now. She says, you're wearing it wrong. I say, no, I'm wearing it right. Others are wearing it wrong. And so this morning we got into a debate a little bit and I said, prove to me that this is the right way to wear your watch with its face up. And for all intents and purposes, she told me, prove to me that down is the right way. Courtney helped her out with that one a little bit. We were debating over truth, as it were. 
But that's subjective truth. It's more opinion than anything else, right? But there are truths that transcend opinion. There are those things that we call absolute truths. That regardless of what you think, and regardless of what I think, and regardless of our opinion, and our philosophy, and our beliefs, and regardless of what we might perceive with our eyes or hear with our ears, there are things that are without a doubt true, and without a doubt false. Jesus Christ said, I have come to bear witness of that which is without doubt true. When Jesus speaks of freedom in Christ, when He told those Jews that believed on Him in John 8, verse 32, and ye shall know the truth, it was with the continued benefit, and the truth shall make you free. Those who deny God, His Son Jesus Christ, and His Word are not simply denying a preference or an opinion or an idea. They are not counteracting a man-made philosophy, they are denying absolute truth. They're denying the very fabric upon which life is made. Truly, this world cannot operate without understanding and living under the recognition of God and the way He operates in this world. You say, but people who don't believe in God can still live and operate. Yes, but they're living and operating under biblical presuppositions. See, we know gravity is true. We know how gravity operates. We know its properties. We know its limitations, though we cannot see it. But we can see its effects everywhere. Gravity is true. It is undeniable. A person cannot claim truth and say that gravity does not exist. Nor can a person claim that gravity doesn't affect his life simply because he refuses to acknowledge it as truth. I could stand here all day and say there's no such thing as gravity, but when I jump, I'm still coming back to the ground. I can deny it till I'm blue in the face, but there's never going to be a day where I jump and I don't come back to the ground. Because gravity exists. It is true without a doubt. God is Truth. God's Word is truth. And God's Son, Jesus Christ, is truth. We cannot see God, but just like gravity, we know how He operates, we know His character, and we see His effects everywhere. A person cannot deny that God exists without contradicting themselves. Certainly, he can deny in his mind that God exists. He can claim ignorance of God's existence, but that doesn't change the truth, nor does it change the degree to which that truth affects him personally. The reality that we are still accountable to the truth, whether we accept it or not. A person who refuses to know God is no less responsible to God than the man who refuses to accept gravity is still going to come back down to the ground when he jumps. And so Jesus states that his purpose the very reason for his birth and his life was to bear witness to that which was already true. And in characteristic fashion to those who would pacify their consciences through ignorance, Pilate denies the very existence of truth. Such a denial will be no excuse for Pilate on the day that he stands before judgment. After these words, Pilate leaves. It says, he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them, I find no fault in this man. This man is not guilty of anything. 
he is not worthy of death. And he says, but you want him dead, but you do have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. And he says, will you therefore that I release unto you this king of the Jews? Should I release him? Should I pardon him of these crimes that, you, that, that these leaders have declared against him? And they cried in verse 40, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And so the Jews, willing rather to release a man who was both a robber and a killer, according to the Word of God and the synoptics, they'd rather release this man than release an innocent man who had done no wrong. But we know that it was of God how Jesus Christ must die. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines king this way. A chief ruler, a sovereign, one invested with supreme authority over a nation, country, or tribe. Jesus Christ is king. But not over a physical nation, not over a country or a tribe, but over his church. He doesn't rule over lands. He rules over hearts. But you know, the interesting thing about Jesus' kingship is, while at this time He doesn't impose His rule over every man physically, God is never going to force anyone to submit Himself to the kingship of Jesus Christ in this age. Jesus Christ is a, to believe on Jesus Christ is a, is a decision that each man must make and he has the free will to deny that decision. Just because he doesn't impose his rulership over every man, that does not mean he doesn't have authority. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords, King of this earth. And he does indeed have authority. And the scriptures tell us that every man will without fail answer for how they respond to the authority of their King Jesus Christ. And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, either in this life or on the day of judgment. This morning I asked you a question in our sermon and the question was this. How do you respond to the Word of God? Do you respond with humility and repentance or do you respond with pride and self-righteousness, pride and self-justification? As we consider Jesus Christ as King this evening, we sang just before the sermon, crown Him with many crowns. We'll sing in just a moment after our Selah, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. My question for you this evening is how do you respond to your King? How do you respond to the truth? How do you respond to the Word of God? Have you responded to Him, first of all, by placing your faith in the name of Jesus Christ unto salvation? See, the Bible tells us that salvation is by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not about us working our way into heaven. It's not about us earning a place in heaven. It's about what our King has done for us. It's about submitting ourselves willingly under the authority of the One who has died for us and the One who is the rightful owner, the rightful 
creator, the rightful king over our lives? Have you responded to him by placing your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation? But you know, most of us in this room at least are believers. And as we think about our disposition toward Christ as believers, the question is just as pertinent. How do you respond to Jesus Christ, not just as Savior, but as King? We asked this morning about those various elements of your life as you live your life, the places you go, the things you do, the things you say, the things you think, what you have in your house, how you react to people, anger, bitterness, strife, contention, pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, self-justification, things that we find in our lives that are directly contrary to the expectations of our King. As we think about Jesus Christ as our sovereign King, as we think about Jesus Christ as our spiritual King, as we think about the truth of Jesus Christ that makes Him our King in truth or our true King, is He daily moment by moment, truly reigning over your life. He is your king. Are you acting like it? See, Jesus is king regardless of how we respond to him. But how we respond to him matters a great deal. So how do you respond?